You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 32, beginning in verse 1, says this. A mascal of David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, Lord, thank you for your word. I ask, Father, that you would come and and do what a a good father does. Come and speak to us, your children. Help us to hear instruction from you and even correction from you, if that's what's needed um, this morning. Most of all, Father, I pray that you would come and magnify the name of your crucified, risen, and returning Son, Jesus, in our midst. Trust that you will do that and then some. We love you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. The topic of Psalm 32, or the theme is uh, really centered around one word, forgiveness. It's really the core driving theme of this song, forgiveness. Forgiveness, I would say, is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Jesus came to this earth um, to live the perfect life in our place, to die a horrible death, on a cross as the perfect substitute for us, right? Filthy, rotten, rebellious sinners. That's what he came to do. He came to leave the tomb empty on the third day, to leave us with the promise of heaven, eternity in heaven with our heavenly Father. And in the midst of all that, gives us this opportunity, just as Joe uh, read a little bit ago, um, when we come to Jesus and we 
confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness, right? That's at the heart of this entire message, is that God wanted us to be able to come to him by faith in the perfect work of Jesus so that we might receive full and complete forgiveness. You could say a full pardon for our crimes against God, our sin against God. The reality, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus himself, he did everything that needed to be done to remove the barrier of sin that we had placed between us and him, right? Um, Through Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his promised return, all of that is centered on Jesus himself making a way for us to be Forgiven. To be forgiven means what? Uh, To be forgiven means to have the stains of our sin washed completely clean from our hearts. uh, Similar to the slate of a chalkboard in a classroom. By faith, the faith that Jesus writes upon our hearts... By faith, our sins can be completely forgiven. And we can experience that clean slate, a clean conscience, you might say. But the first thing that I notice in the text when we're talking about forgiveness is that forgiveness has to be experienced. Oftentimes, uh, we turn theological truths into these kind of cold, hard statements that, that have little to no connection to our lives. And they roll off our tongues as true. But we don't experience that truth. And if we don't experience that truth, there'll be little to no transformation in our lives. So forgiveness has to be experienced. And when you read the first two verses of this psalm, you get the sense that David has experienced forgiveness in a really personal way. Um, You may not know this. Um, Some people, if not most, um, believe that this psalm, Psalm 32, that it, it is like the second half of Psalm 51. So if you're familiar with Psalm 51... Um, or at least, if it's not the second half of it, that it should be read in conjunction with Psalm 51. Um, I, y'all, if, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me reference this psalm often. It's one that's been close to my heart as God has done his transforming work in my life over the years. I identify deeply uh, with David and his sin and the sin that I know has been in my life and that God still continues to uh, redeem me from. Psalm 51, if you're not familiar with it, uh, this is David's psalm of confession. It's his psalm of confession after he was confronted by the prophet Nathan for using his power and his authority to forcibly have sex with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he turned around and murdered her husband, David's friend. 
to cover up his sin. Psalm 51 is his confession. I think we oftentimes get a misguided view of who God loves to forgive, don't we? Do you ever ever think sometimes in the back of your head that there's no way God could forgive me for that sin? Or how about there's no way God could forgive me for that sin for the millionth time? We oftentimes get a misguided view of who God loves to forgive. We sometimes believe that God loves to forgive the lovable, right? The truth is God loves to forgive the unlovable. I mean, ask this question, who could forgive a rapist and a murderer like David? (coughs) See, we don't think of David this way very often. We think of him as the guy with the stones and the sling, right? Who could forgive a rapist and a murderer like David? And the answer is God. It's the beauty of the scriptures. The answer is God. God loves to forgive rapists and murderers like David. This is why David begins Psalm 32 with those first two verses, focusing on forgiveness. He uses these kinds of words. It's blessed. This word blessed, right? We use this word a lot. Like, Be blessed, brother. Be blessed, sister. Have a blessed day. Blessings on you, right? You were a blessing in my life. We use that word in, in all sorts of different forms. Blessed simply means happy, which um, for Andrew's sake, I must mention the song, I'm happy, I'm feeling glad. I got sunshine in a bag. <laughs> this has been uh, popping up in sermons ever since the beginning of the well because it's a song that has been written on my memory. Happy. Happy is what blessed means. Happy is the one whose transgression, this word transgression, what does that mean? It means rebellion. It means you know the difference between right and wrong, and yet you still did it. It's rebellious. God's law was written on our hearts, the scriptures tell us. We know the difference deep down inside between right and wrong, and yet we still choose to rebel. So, David says, blessed or happy is the one whose rebellion is forgiven. This word forgiven means to be completely wiped clean. Whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin, he says. What does sin mean? It's interesting because David is using different words to get after this idea of our filthy brokenness, our rebellion. Now he uses sin. First he uses transgression. Sin. Those who have missed the mark of perfection. The idea of an archer with an arrow missing the mark. That's sin. So he says, happy is the one whose rebellion is forgiven, wiped clean. For those who have missed the mark of perfection, that failure, he says, is covered or hidden or washed away. That's a blessed person. That's a truly happy person. It flies in the face of what the world tells us brings true happiness. David says you're truly happy when you recognize that your rebellion and your sin has been covered and taken away. I want you to think about this. How happy would you be to get all of your financial debt, not just currently, so get that number in your head. What's your current financial debt? House loan, car loan, another car loan. 
oh, there's a bike loan in there. <laughs> Just so I can, you know. I don't know what your number is, uh, whatever your number is. Wouldn't it be fantastic to have all your current debt completely wiped away? But here's the thing. When it comes to this idea of forgiveness, God's forgiveness, it's not just about your current pile of debt. It's about all your past debt, all your current debt, and any future debt that you might incur. Cure, cure. It doesn't mean you go live recklessly from this point forward, right? You don't want to recklessly incur debt now that you know, whoa, God's going to forgive all of it. Wouldn't that be a life-changing experience for you? What would that do for your life if God said, I wipe it all out, all your debt, all your financial debt, past, present, and future, all of your needs completely taken care of? That would be life-changing. That's just the first verse of the text. That's just the first verse. And if the words of that first verse aren't enough, which I think, here's the thing, I love how God puts his word together. You ever recognize how sometimes we need to hear things twice? Because the first time it was said, we were distracted, right? We were doing something else. We weren't paying attention to what God was saying. So the, the, the first time in the first verse, if you didn't catch it, guess what David does? He's going to repeat it in a different way. Look at verse 2 with me. All David does in verse 2 is compound everything he's already said about God's forgiveness. He wants us to experience the full measure of God's forgiveness. He says it this way. He says it again. He says, blessed, happy. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. You understand this word iniquity? Iniquity, transgression, sin. Three different ways of talking about our rebellion, our failure, and not only that, but our absolute war against God in our sin. It's three different, and then iniquity is one of the heaviest ways of saying it in my mind when I read the original languages. He's basically saying, blessed, happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Counts. Think of this word, counts no iniquity. It's a it's, it's, a, uh, it's a financial type of a term, right? You think spreadsheets where you're keeping track of what's owed and what's been paid. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity or what? Or keeps a rec no record of wrongdoing. God's spreadsheet, according to one scholar, God's spreadsheet against you for your wrongdoing has been wiped clean. There's a little button in Excel spreadsheets where you can go clear contents. That's exactly what God did the moment Jesus died on the cross. Jesus had his spreadsheet full of beauty, perfection. And your spreadsheet was so filthy, so dirty. And let me tell you, you don't, you don't have to do all the despicable things that some people do. Just the fact that you did something kind for somebody and deep down inside you wanted to be noticed for doing something kind, do you understand that that is selfishness? It's self-centered. That's a sin that is just as despicable as David raping a woman and killing her husband. Your spreadsheet was filled 
with those kinds of marks. That was your record. And the moment Jesus died on the cross, the moment you then placed your trust in him, what God did is he took all of the junk on your record and he switched it with Jesus. He put all your filth and all your mess onto Jesus' spreadsheet and took all of Jesus' perfection, all those words that describe him, and he put it in your spreadsheet. No record of wrongdoing. Blessed or happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity or keeps no record. And, he says, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Meaning what? Meaning that this kind of a person, if you're this kind of a person, you have experienced God's forgiveness to the extent that you do not deceive yourself into thinking that you have not sinned against God. This is the essence of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Right? Anyone who says... I have not sinned, makes himself to be a liar, and proves that he hates God. That's my paraphrase. David, thousands of years before that, gets the essence of it here. David sees himself as a rebellious traitor. That's the way he sees himself. Sees himself as a rebellious traitor who has absolutely failed to meet the goal of perfection. He sees himself as the friend who stole his brother's wife, forced her to sleep with him, and then murdered his friend to cover up his crime. And alongside that, he sees God as the God who loves to forgive sinful, rebellious, backstabbing, self-centered, murderous Sex addicts. David's not pulling any punches here, right? He knows that he's a man who has experienced forgiveness. You don't experience forgiveness until you fully experience the mess. If you try to hide <coughs> or conceal the mess of sin in your life, you will not experience the goodness of God. What you will experience is a false notion of a God who lets you get away with anything you want to do. The thing about David is not just that he experienced forgiveness, but he also received forgiveness. Receiving forgiveness is a big part of this, and you see this in the text as well. Everybody clench your fists with me for a minute. Just clench your fists. This way, if any of you are sleeping, this wakes you up, right? No, that's not the intent. Clench your fists. Lewis, come here. I have $20. Hey, your, your fists need to be clenched. <laughs> you see what he just did? Like this gift of 20 bucks looks so enticing to him. He unclenched his hand. And like a good son, when I said, wait, clench your fist, he, he did what he was told. Now you can, okay, there you go. You can have it. <laughs> so I want you to think about this. What you just saw is a, sorry, Charity, I'll get you one day. <laughs> All my kids right now are like, 
dad has always used us for like negative illustrations and he just gives the boy 20 bucks. <laughs> I'm good. I'm going to hear about this. I'm certain of it. <laughs> but what you just saw is a great visualization, right? When your fists are clenched, you can't receive a gift. You have to open your hand. The flip side is also true. When you get the gift, what do you usually do? Now, Lewis, I want you to give charity the 20 bucks. <laughs> See, and I, I did not intend this to be a sermon about generosity, so y'all should get out your check. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> it is a great picture, though, isn't it? With clenched fish, you can neither receive nor give away. And, and with those clenched fish, you cause damage. This is what David had done. He needed to receive forgiveness. But if you read the text, there's an interesting image that happens. Again, sometimes we deify our heroes in Scripture. Do you hear what I'm saying? We deify them. We, we make the heroes in Scripture to be a, like God. And we tell people, be like David, face your giants. And I'm like, yeah. Until you realize that really David was not in Scripture to be an example for us. David was in Scripture to be an example of Jesus. Period. Period. That's the historical teaching throughout the Scriptures. David. David, David, David. David had to receive forgiveness, which means he needed to have open hands because it's a gift that has to be received. Sometimes, and maybe you know what this is like, God has to force you to open your hands, right? He has to force you to open your hands so that you can actually receive the good gift that you actually need. And that's the process that David actually describes in verses 3 through 7. It's important for us not to miss this. And what he describes is a process of receiving forgiveness that begins with this stubborn silence. Right? It's just stubborn silence as he's hiding out from God. Doesn't want to go to God with his sin. And then it moves on to this kind of a reluctant confession. Again, we don't want to glamorize the story. It's a reluctant confession. If you read it in, compar in comparison or, or if you pair this psalm with Psalm 51 and you remember, you think about the story of David and Bathsheba and murders her husband, his best friend, right? How far along do you think Bathsheba was in her pregnancy before Nathan came and pointed it out? Because this all happened in front of everybody and David pretended like nobody knew. God knew. God sees everything. We, one commentary this week said, we get really, really, really upset about how the American government watches and listens to everything we do and say. But it's like, you know, the American government misses an awful lot. God doesn't miss anything. Not one thought goes through your mind. Not one image goes through your mind. Not one word comes out of your mouth. If he knows every hair on our heads, nothing gets past him. That's absolutely frightening and it's also absolutely comforting 
It's frightening because I am ashamed of my sin, and I don't want God to I don't want anybody to see that or hear about it. And on the other hand, it's absolutely comforting because I know that God's got me. It's a simultaneous thing. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says it in verses 3 and 4, David does this. I tried to conceal this thing. I tried to keep it a secret. Tried to conceal my sin in silence. You know what that feels like, right? When you conceal your sin and you're hiding it, you're pretending like, oh, I'm not really that bad. Don't look at me. I don't want to tell you. I don't want you to see me. He says his bones felt like they were wasting away. <coughs> you ever been there? Concealing your sin. It's like his bones are wasting away. He says, groaning inwardly like this exhausted man on a really hot day. Because why? Because the text tells us, David tells us, God's hand was heavy upon me. This is the picture of God just grabbing a hold of you and be like, wake up. And he's like in your face, right? And you're like closing your eyes and you're, you're trying to pretend like, oh, I don't know, stay away. But he just stays in your grill the whole time until you have to give in. That's the image. No matter how much David tried to hide his sin from God, his heavenly Father loved him too much to leave him alone in his secret sin. See, a bad father on Father's Day, a bad father would go, yes, yeah, son, I see you doing all that bad stuff there. I'm just going to go back to watching TV and drinking my beer. That's a bad father who does not love his children. A good father says, son, come here and let's talk. I love you. And the son's like, shut up, I hate you. You're not my dad. <laughs> You're always trying to hurt me. And <laughs> take my fun away. No, I love you. No matter how much you try to abuse me with your words, I'm going to continue to try to correct you. This is what God's doing. He's getting in David's face. He's not letting it go. He's not leaving David alone. And that's what he does for us if we are his children. I think Hebrews makes this really plain and clear too. I think it's Hebrews 12 or 6. Hmm. I don't have the reference, so one of you can correct me later and tell me which one it is. But there is a, a reference to this kind of discipline that God inflicts on our life. Because he loves us. You see, the subtle lie that Satan wants you and I to believe is this. He wants you and I to believe that we need to keep our sin a secret so that God won't leave us. If, 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 I, if, if I let this out, he's going to abandon me and leave me. He's not going to like me. I'm no good for him. But the, the truth is, is that God knows, God himself knows that our secret sins will kill us. Because sin kills indiscriminately. So what does God do? He comes after us. He comes after us. Chases us down. And he chases us down in the deepest and darkest jungles of our, our secret sin. And what does he do? He, he works to correct our unbelief. Because God lovingly corrects his children, he lovingly corrects us when we sin, and because he refuses to leave us in the darkness of that sin, what will God do? He'll continuously squeeze us, kind of like a soaking wet sponge, right? Until something comes out. 
until we give in and receive his forgiveness. He's prying back our fingers so that our hands can be open to receive that forgiveness. And in this passage, David confesses, I couldn't bear the pressure anymore. I couldn't take it. God kept coming after me. And I finally, finally submitted to him. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Get this picture of Adam and Eve in the garden trying to cover their iniquity with the fig leaves that they sewed together. It's their own fashioning of something to cover their shame, right? They tried to do it on their own. And then when God came into the garden, what did they do? They didn't run up to him and go, hey, look, God, I covered my nakedness. I'm no longer ashamed. They hid because they knew deep down inside that their own work could not cover or make right their shame. And what did God do? Oh, you stupid adamant. No, he didn't do that, did he? I mean, there was truth spoken, but he didn't stand there and scold them. He asked them questions, and then he went out, and what did he do? Shed blood for the very first time and covered them with animal skins. I love that picture of the gospel so early on in Genesis. Blood was shed to cover the iniquity and the sin of Adam and Eve. David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I quit hiding it, and I quit trying to cover it. I quit trying to work to make it right. Obviously, David wants to do the right thing, but he's not trying to earn God's love. He's not trying to earn God's forgiveness. He's just trying to receive it now. You can't earn forgiveness. You just can't. Like, if Lewis screws up and does something wrong, so I'll use you as a negative illustration, okay, so that we get it all, all. I mean, if Lewis does something wrong, I'm like, Lewis, bro, you're going to be grounded for a couple of weeks. Deal with consequences. If you don't learn consequences, you, know, you can build good character, all this other good stuff. And if, you know, that night he decides to go clean the garage, which he did recently, not because he was in trouble, just did it because he wanted to do it, which was awesome, by the way. And then he goes and tries to, like, clean the garage. It's like, Dad, do you love me now? It's like, bro, <laughs> like, never changed loving you. I forgive you. Will you forgive me now? You don't have to do anything to get that. I'm your dad. That's what I do. I, I forgive. I love. This is what God does. David's saying, I did not try to cover this anymore. I didn't try to hide it anymore. And he said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. See, God's convicting pressure, prying his fingers open, led to David's full confession of sin, which then led David to receive a full pardon for his betrayal. But you think about this image of betrayal. When you and I sin, when David sinned, when he did what he did, I imagine that none of us in this room are rapists and murderers. Imagine. I imagine that to be true. When you think about David, if you're trying to put an image to it that might fit us better, think about it like this. Think about David like an American soldier. Or maybe like you and I. We're an American soldier. Right? We betrayed our country. We became a terrorist. And in the midst of that terrorism, we realized the error of our ways. 
and we ask for forgiveness and received a full pardon. Now, everybody else in the United States is now ticked because you're free and not in prison or got the death penalty, but you're free. You got a full pardon from the President of the United States. That's the image. David is now a man who has received a clean slate. No reminder of it. No memory of it whatsoever. We read this passage earlier. Uh, Joe mentioned it earlier, I think. He received a clean slate from the God who loves to forgive. And what God loves to do is he loves to throw the memory and the consequences and the actual actions of our betrayal, of our terrorism against him, he loves to throw that as far as the east is from the west, infinite amount of distance, high as the heavens are above the earth, infinite amount of distance, according to Psalm 103. When we truly receive that kind of forgiveness, when you get that, when you experience it and you receive it, what do you do? You can't help but encourage others to receive it too, right? Man, this is good. I like really, really good steak, and I love to share that with other people because I love it. It's good, right? Can't help to encourage others to receive this gift. At that point, if you have received, you've experienced his forgiveness, and you've received his, his forgiveness, what do you do? You talk about it. You talk about the God who loves to forgive even the most despicable of sinners, not in ways that allow people to just continue in their sin, but in ways that allows us and helps us and encourages us and challenges us to take stock of the sin that's in our lives and apply the shed blood of Jesus to it and this picture of full forgiveness. This is why David then, in verse 6, encourages everyone to ask God for forgiveness. And then he promises that God will protect us from the waves of the storm. Shame, doubt, guilt, temptation. David had received God's forgiveness and he couldn't keep his mouth shut any longer. That's what's happening. God's forgiveness had at this point transformed David. The transformation that happened in David is he was taken from a man of silent, secret sin and he was transformed into a man who openly and publicly confessed his sin and proclaimed the way for others to be forgiven as well. And the final proof here, the final proof that David had truly received forgiveness is that he praised God. He praised God for being his hiding place, for preserving him, for filling his heart with shouts of freedom, according to verse 7. <coughs> Forgiveness must be experienced in light of how bad we really are and how unimaginably good God really is. And at that point, then, then and only then, I think, can we truly receive the gift of forgiveness. Even if it means that God has to pry our hands open so that we can receive the gift that leads to complete freedom. And once you get a taste once you get just a small taste of true freedom that God gives you through complete forgiveness of the filthiest, darkest, dirtiest sins that you've concealed in your heart and your mind, when you get a taste of that kind of freedom, I think you begin to grow in godliness. Now, my wife and I have been married for maybe 20 years uh, this fall. 
If you know our story, you know our story is full of some pretty nasty stuff in the background. Like we came from some pretty gross places. Places I don't have, we don't have the time or the space for me to, to dive into. But if, if you know me well, you know us well, you know. If you know, you know. If you don't, I'd be happy to share it with you. I can say that, I can say that one of my, one of my longest, deepest, most heavily rooted sins is sexual sin from the age of seven on up. And to keep it not so graphic and and to to stay general on on purpose, um, and my wife and I have walked through a lot over the years, and I can tell you, uh, out of all the people that I've known, my wife has continuously showed me the grace and the forgiveness that I never thought was really possible. God has used that woman in my life in some of the most powerful ways to remind me that God never leaves you. He never forsakes you. His forgiveness is complete. And the freedom that comes along with experiencing that forgiveness and receiving that forgiveness has transformed my life over and over and over again. One time she looked at me, and I I just remember confessing some sin to her um, fearfully. (laughs) And we've tried to make this a practice in our marriage where we we, we try to be very real about the sin in our lives, thought patterns, um, words, desires, anything, right? We've tried to be pretty brutally honest over the years. And we have different seasons where, yeah, not so much, and other times we do, but I just remember there, there was a season recently, and I was, um, I was doing, doing my best to kind of walk through some cleansing and some purity in my heart and mind and my behaviors. And uh, at, on, she looked at me, and uh, <laughs> she's like, she goes, you know, um, she goes, repentance looks really sexy. And I was like, hmm, thanks, Charity. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you know, <laughs> yes, my wife has her own way of encouraging. I'm thankful for her. Anyways, the encouragement, the encouragement that, that is there in that relationship um, and the freedom that gets tasted back to that. Once you taste that kind of freedom in relationship where you can be honest, you can uncover your secret sin, and you can lay it out there. That's the gift of the body of Christ. It's the gift of marriage, when your marriage is built on Jesus, right? It, it, that's that gift, where, where, where you're looking to God, and you're going, I'm trying to be like God, so I want to forgive you the same way. It's, it's beautiful. It's like a great taste of steak, right? When you get a taste for that, it produces change in your life. It produces godliness. And that's the last thing I see in the text. A person who has truly experienced, a person who has truly received God's forgiveness, this is the kind of person who is ready to continue growing. Oftentimes I notice in, in my pastoral ministry and working with people, and I've noticed this in my own life too, that when I have unforgiveness in my own heart, it's a barrier to growth. And I, you know, I've seen a counselor for years too. <laughs> so I, if you didn't think I was jacked up, now you know. <laughs> I, remember, you know I remember talking to our counselor about me. I just think I'm having a hard time even forgiving myself. And she's like, can you show me that in scripture? And I'm like, hmm. 
can't. There's no command in Scripture, thou shalt forgive thyself. I love, whenever I do this, I like to do the King James Version, because it's holier than thou. <laughs> so, I remember thinking through that and reading through and you're right, I, I can't find it. But what I can find is all sorts of scriptures that talk about us being forgiven by a perfect God who doesn't have to forgive us. And I guess in a sense, the only way I can say it is as I experienced God's forgiveness, I was able to forgive myself. Like To me, it's not like it's a biblical term. It's more of a human experience, right? You know what I mean? Like I, I, I can't tell you that the Bible tells us to go forgive ourselves. But I can tell you the Bible tells us, receive God's forgiveness and experience it. And in the midst of that, you'll forgive yourself. If you come face to face with the truth that you and I are that bad and he is that good and he's wiped the slate clean, at some point you start going, okay, guilt and shame, you have no more hold over me. I ain't going to live there. This is why Romans 8, 1 is so powerful for me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why it's so powerful. So in these final verses, in verses 8 through 11, God is the one speaking, I believe. Um, and God says that he will instruct, he will teach, he will counsel, he'll keep a close eye on us. In verse 8. So that's God's desire. God's desire is that we would experience and receive his forgiveness. If we could experience it, if we could receive it, then what happens? We become pliable in his hands as his children. He then is able to instruct us and teach us and counsel us as he watches over us. And again, that, that brings up this image of a loving father, right? He's a loving father. He wants to train us, wants to guide us, wants to protect us. So that, why? Not so that he can control us. Although, I mean, he's sovereign, so he's in control. So might as well just surrender anyways, right? But it's not for any bad, ill-gotten gain. It's simply so that we might grow and mature into all that he intended us to be. And here's the thing. I think that once you and I get this vision of a heavenly father who loves us this way, it becomes much easier um, not to be like a stupid horse. That's what he says, basically. Don't be like a stupid horse. Don't be like a stubborn mule. Have you ever worked with horses? I grew up on a farm. My mom was a horse trainer, and man, we got some horses that were pretty tough. We never had mules. My mom always said mules are too dumb. Won't do mules. <laughs> too dumb. I don't know if it's true. But anyways, he says, hey, don't be like a stupid horse. Don't be like a stubborn mule who needs this really painful bit in his mouth. We had all sorts of different bits that you would put in a horse's mouth depending upon the sensitivity of their mouth and how rebellious or how stubborn they were. If you really wanted to get a horse to do something, you would get this bid, and it was kind of a straight-across bid, and it came up in a little bit of a spike. And then when, when you would pull back on the reins, it would press that spike down to the back of their tongue, and it would let them know, you better knock it off. This is what God is talking about. Don't be like that kind of a horse or that kind of a mule with that kind of a painful bit in your mouth. The best horses I rode as a kid would ride bareback with no bridle and only hold on to the back of the mane. And by knee pressure, you could guide that horse. And by gently tugging back on the mane, they would know what you wanted. That was a horse that was pliable in the hands of its rider and was obedient and had experienced the freedom of not having a bridle. 
Best horses I ever rode. I remember flying through the, the fields, racing my mom side by side. And uh, sometimes I won. This is the image of what it looks like to be a person who has experienced and received forgiveness. And I think once you get there, it becomes a little bit easier over time. Have a real serious distaste in your mouth for your wickedness and your sin. Because you're so overwhelmed with what? The steadfast love of God. And that's what David points to in the very end. The steadfast love of God, not the reckless love of God. There, i got to get it in there. The steadfast love of God. The rest of that song is perfect. It's just the one word. Just need to change it to steadfast and we're good. I'm always going to press on that. It's the steadfast love of God that helped David to trust God and helps us to trust God. The kind of godliness that forgiveness produces is the kind of godliness that finds absolute happiness and absolute joy in the presence of a completely forgiving and heavenly father. That's verse 11. That's the final piece. You find all your joy, all your happiness, all your blessedness in a completely forgiving heavenly father. So in conclusion, last week I shared a story. If you were here, you'd remember. It's a story of a little boy standing on top of his house. And the house is inflamed. It's on fire. I think I remember asking you guys to, to think about being that little boy. Think about the emotion. Think about the fear. You're the only one there. <coughs> You're on top of that house. You went up to the top of the house to flying out the front door when the house caught on fire. Now you're trapped. You can't get out. And the roof, the roof is crumbling under your feet. And you can't see through the smoke. It's billowing. You can barely even breathe, right? <clears throat> and your father is on the ground, and he's screaming at you. Jump off the roof. Jump towards the sound of my voice. I will catch you. safe. Trust me. Trust the sound of my voice and jump. Now, oftentimes, I think it's really hard to jump through those clouds of smoke, isn't it? Because you can't see your Heavenly Father on the other side. And I think oftentimes we believe this lie that Satan's told us that our Heavenly Father won't actually catch us. Right? But I think there's something deeper than that. I realized this week. There's something really deep to our mistrust of the Father in those moments. You know what that deeper issue is? The deeper issue is that when I told you that story about the burning house, you and I immediately thought somebody else set fire to the house and we were the victims. But the reality is we know deep down inside we are the ones that set the fire to our own house. 
That's what we know. Whether we can admit it or not, it's what we know. I set the fire to my own house. The one that my father so beautifully built for me. And now I'm standing on top of it and it's burning down. And he says he's going to catch me. It's really hard to believe that he will because I just wrecked the beautiful thing he gave me. I think that's at the core of our mistrust of our Father. The beauty of the gospel, this is why the gospel is so freeing, but the beauty of the gospel is that our Heavenly Father is ready, waiting to give us the gift of His full and complete forgiveness as you jump through those flames into His arms by faith. That's the whole picture. This is what David is experiencing. This is what it looks like to experience and to receive God's forgiveness and to trust in Him as He shows us how to live in that freedom that He offers us right at the foot of that bloody cross, right there in the doorway of that empty tomb, right there in light of the promise of the hope of heaven. The question is, have you experienced and received that kind of forgiveness lately? In what ways do you need to experience that forgiveness? What sins do you need to confess so that you can actually receive God's complete forgiveness? You keep holding on to the sin, hiding it, you're not going to open your hand to receive forgiveness. You've got to open your hand. Confess and receive. So my hope and my prayer for us is that we would each experience and receive that kind of forgiveness. And that the result of that forgiveness would be increased godliness in our lives. My ultimate prayer, back to that image, is that you and I would continuously learn how to jump through the flames of the house that we set on fire with our own sin into the loving arms of our Heavenly Father who has promised and continues to offer us complete forgiveness by faith in the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father, pray that you would... Uh, Help us to experience and receive your forgiveness by faith as we close. Pray, God, that you would speak to each of us. Trust you to do just that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.